listeners, this is Delaney. We're really excited to kick off our episodes on methodological pluralism in human biology, and we're starting this with Dr. William Dressler, Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama. And as a special treat, the intro and outro songs of this episode feature Dr. Dressler playing the first cello suite of Prelude by Bach. Since you are a professor at the University of Alabama, you spent the weekend in anime ter- territory. I did. I did. My, I, I'm a house divided, as they call it down here. And I have two kids at the University of Alabama, I think, as we discussed once, and one at Auburn. And I went for Parents Weekend at Auburn and watched them limp, limp to the finish line of a win for their homecoming. But you know what was super cool? One, obviously hanging out with my kid seeing all his friends, mm-hmm. seeing him in this element. But as I was discussing with Courtney Helfrich, the spectacle of American sports, in my opinion, is from a biocultural perspective, super understudied. Oh, yeah. Because I feel right? like it's also not respected. 
people don't like to view that as, you know, a valid area of research at all. Well, you know, it's like it's like seeing the fraternity and sorority system as just issue that needs to be solved instead of some integrated aspect of culture that we are not we're not respecting and understanding, especially given that a lot of us are super progressives uh, in anthropology and we see fraternities and sororities as super, I guess, not progressive or right wing. But I mean, a good portion of the kids who arrive on college campuses are being socialized there. Mm -hmm. And we are idiots, frankly, if we're not paying attention to what that, you know, as anthropologists to that socialization process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we've had this discussion before and I'm going to be talking to Courtney on Wednesday. She and I have a a Zoom chit chat scheduled. So I'm sure we'll bring it up then too. But sports becomes this also wonderful area for true biocultural research because what it does to the body and how the body is used in these spaces and contexts, both on the field or court or whatever, but also by fans, because there's like, there's a biological component to that as well. And it is, we're both at big football school, so we get it yeah. and we're embedded in it constantly. There's no getting away from that culture. Just watching my wife with lupus like try to get out of the sun at the oh. stadium oh. wasn't was an interesting. I mean, we were we had great seats and the sun was behind the edge of the stadium within 15 minutes of us getting there. We had great seats, but for people who weren't weren't in such great seats, you know, like it's an endurance thing yeah. to be at one of those football games. And my son, who was in the student section, like, they sucked big time. Auburn, mm-hmm. so those who maybe don't pay attention to football, like, they, it was their homecoming game. They were pay- playing what is usually called a cream puff, right? Somebody yeah. they should beat easily for their parents' weekend. And they were behind the entire game until literally a fourth down situation with 45 seconds to go. They should have lost that game. And they won it, and everybody went crazy. And then they run over to the trees in their quad called Tumors and throw toilet paper all over them, which is frankly really beautiful. Yeah. And it's just that rite of intensification is fascinating. But my son was like talking like this because he'd scream so much. Huh. You know, like yeah, no. that that adrenaline that's pumping through those kids during those, um, I won't say matches, during those games. My wife would call it a match. Yeah, my husband gets, always misses gets her types sports of sports terminology. You like, can't call a football game a match. Which quarter are we in when we're watching a hockey game? It's like, are you uh-huh. kidding me? Or baseball? Like, quarters? Really? Really? But yeah, speaking of limping across a line of victory, it's not like Notre Dame has any idea what that's been like the past three games. Yeah, yeah, you guys. Uh, well, <laughs> Wisconsin was a nice win. It, it, it wasn't until the end. Like, that score does not represent how close that game was. That, that's it really what I read. Doesn't. It really doesn't. Anyway, you should introduce our guest because you know him quite well. We interviewed Kathy Ose earlier in our, in like two years ago. And Bill and Kathy, Bill Dressler, uh, William Dressler to to not people who are not in the know, Bill Dressler to to those who know him. Uh, Bill is a professor emeritus from my department. And he's one of the reasons I came here, frankly. Um, When Bill is. He's a professor emeritus in cultural anthropology at the University of Alabama, but he's a true biocultural anthropologist. He is a cognitive anthropologist. He uh, refined over the course of his career the cultural consensus approach to studying culture, uh, which we're going to talk to him about today. And he innovated the cultural consonance approach. So we're going to talk to him about those two things today. 
And so his his uh retirement, he and and Kathy's retirement left a void in our department and a void in the field in some respects. But fortunately, uh, he's he's now got time to write. So he's got a relatively new book out, Culture and the Individual. But as I was saying with sports, they're the ones who taught me to appreciate Alabama football mm-hmm. and to view everything that goes on, not just the football, but the uh, tailgating, mm-hmm. the cheerleading, the, campus the pep visits, rallies, like days leading up to the game, yeah. all of that. Yeah. To see it as a rite of intensification, mm-hmm. like we would any religious ritual or any sort of performance across the world. And I have to thank them for that. Well, let's bring Bill on. Hello. Hey, how you hey. doing? I'm doing great. Bill, Kara, Kara, Bill. I don't think we've ever met in person. No, but I heard you deliver a paper in Vancouver. So that makes sense. I was there. I was. (laughs) (laughs) I saw you in person, but we didn't meet. Well, that was a big missed opportunity. I'm so sorry. I didn't get a chance to say hello. And I visited Alabama's campus, I think, once for the seeps. Like, that feels like a decade ago. It totally wasn't, but it feels that way. Yeah, so, long last, Bill, welcome to the Sausage with Science. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We were just talking football um, about our various respective weekends, and I was giving you and Kathy credit for introducing me to the concept of rights of intensification and sort of appreciate <laughs> the glory of not just football, but the cultural trappings that, that swarm and swirl around it. It does indeed. They do indeed. Uh, they also go to a lot of softball and baseball. Not baseball, uh, but we're we're hardcore softball fans. Nice. We we have this whole discussion. We've been I teach anthropology of sports this semester, and we've been talking about sexism in sports. And you know the the excuse always comes up that men get paid more because you know more people just go to their games. And I'm like, let's talk about the College World Series and looking at softball and looking at baseball. And that softball is hugely popular and it gets tons and tons Huge. of people, but they keep putting them in smaller venues. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like the sports touch on everything within anthropology. And I, I, as we were discussing that it's one of these understudied and under-respected avenues of research within our field. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's some old stuff on that in psychanthro. Mm-hmm. Um, back to Jack Roberts in the uh, in the '60s stud- studying games. That's still pretty interesting stuff. But it's one of those things, like you say, hasn't gotten followed up on much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Courtney and I just had one of those hour long conversations in the hallway about what she's going to do after tenure in that regard. So mm-hmm. I was like, "Yeah, well, call me up. I'm ready." <laughs> Anyway, so Bill, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, to chat with us on the Sausage of Science. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and we start off every show in the same way, uh, which is getting to know a little bit about you and what brought you into the field of anthropology and you know why you decided to pursue it as a career. Well, I was interested in anthropology from a very young age from reading National Geographic. Less the kind of um, the kind of exotic otherness of the uh, cultural stuff they did, but the coverage of um, paleoanthropology and especially um, evolution, because uh, I mean I remember uh, vividly I was in about sixth grade and G- and National Geographic 
had an article about uh, Louis Leakey and his discovery of Zinjanthropus, mm-hmm. as he called him back in the day. And um, and so I was just I was I was way into that stuff, um, mainly through National Geographic. And then um, <clears throat> when you say from a young age, roughly, what do you mean? Like, were you 10? Yeah. When, when did you get started on National Geographic? So around 10. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I probably started reading National Geographic much earlier. Mm. Um, uh, um, but uh, I, I, I distinctly remember that issue of describing uh, Louis Leakey and Zinjanthropus. And I was just, I was fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I really had a I had a, I had a real predilection toward that stuff. You know, the funny thing, this is kind of a, this is kind of a, of a, of a silly story, but not so much. Um, when I was in fifth grade, the um, high school Spanish teacher, they just started teaching Spanish. The high school Spanish teacher came down to the elementary school and we got one half hour class of Spanish uh, a week. And I loved it. I was just, I was, I was fascinated by it. And I remember walking home and looking at a tree as I was walking home and thinking to myself, and I can't remember the Spanish word for, for tree and in Portuguese, it's arvore. So, and it's, so it's something close to that in Spanish. Arbor. Arbor. And so anyway, I remember walking home and looking at that tree and thinking, why do people who speak Spanish go to all the trouble to think of the word tree and then translate it into Spanish and mm-hmm. say it in Spanish? Why don't they just say it in English? Because I was thinking everybody thought in English, right? I and had then the all same sudden, thing as a kid. <laughs> all of a sudden it hit me mm-hmm. that holy moly, they look at that thing and they don't see a tree they see an audible and i was i was stunned and i remember distinctly like standing there and just staring and being absolutely stunned with the vague and just so ever inchoate intuition that people different people saw the world differently it was a different world that they lived in and i was just flabbergasted now you know, unfortunately, I, I was yeah I was nine at the time. Unfortunately, I wasn't I wasn't prepared to you know like dive into cognitive anthropology right at the moment. <laughs> but but it was the you know if the seed was planted. There was there was something planted there that never went away. And then I went off to uh, to college and I took a uh, course entitled Cultural Evolution. We read a book by Darcy Hibero. Uh, the Brazilian anthropologist called the civilizational process, and I was just, I was just hooked right, at, right then and there. And the uh, the professor in the course gave me a little pep talk about, well, you know, you seem to like this stuff. Why don't you declare an anthropology major? And I said, okay, that's that's it. So over the course of a while in the field, <laughs> when you started, was there you know, what we now know as a fairly normal method for doing quantitative analysis of culture, a cultural consensus model, um, or if there was, you know, like, how did you 
first started thinking about culture in an empirical way? And how did you then go on to develop the, the cultural consonance approach, which from my perspective defines you and your career? Maybe I'm maybe you don't see it that way. So I'd be curious about your view on that and, and, and how you you see all that in the field. Well, very definitely, I was interested in what we now call mixed methods and what back in the day we just called the qualitative quantitative mix mm. right from the start. Because, okay, I declared my anthropology major um, in the fall, no, the spring of 1971. And Bert Pelto, Pertie J. Pelto, had published uh, Anthropological Research, The Structure of Inquiry, the year before in 1970. And I, you know, Bert's book uh, was arguably the very first comprehensive methods book for cultural anthropology, full stop, okay? Now, how did I even run across that? Well, one of my advisors at Grinnell, where I went to school, was a guy named Doug Calkins who had been Bert's advisee when Bert was teaching at Cornell, where Doug got his PhD. And so Doug, we had a required method seminar in the junior year at Grinnell, and Doug used Bert's book. Well, then I left, and I got fascinated by it. Then I left Grinnell and I went to Missouri specifically because they were trying to develop a specialized methods track um, in their anthropology program, guided mainly by a guy named Bob Benfer, who um, uh, taught me uh, most of what I know about multivariate statistics, and a guy named Mike Robbins. Well, Mike Robbins was Bert's student at Minnesota. And so I took Mike's method seminar, where he also used Bert's book. So I'd already, so I, so I, so twice, you know, I've had Bert's method seminar from two of his students. Then I go out to Connecticut to become Bert's student, and I get Bert's method seminar a third time. <laughs> so um, between 1971, because I took that that method seminar in the fall of 71 between 71 and 76 i had this intensive this intensive tutorial from these uh, mainly these three people but you know i learned a hell of a lot from bob benfer i learned a hell of a lot from some other people but this intensive long-term seminar in making anthropology an explicitly empirical and 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 a and a publicly empirical in that sense of public methods uh, endeavor and so that's that was it i mean i was just i had a concentrated training in that over that period of time and a really wonderful early exposure I feel like so few students, like especially at the undergrad level, get that exposure to both qualitative and quantitative. So that's a really unique mm -hmm. experience and definitely kind of positioned you and shaped you moving forward. Uh, so let's talk about that mixed methods a little bit and, and you know what that means to you, the qualitative and quantitative. There's this movement within anthropology, at least theoretically, to go more towards you know, mixed methods, but it's really hard to do. 
and it's also really hard to get past review in many ways because you'll get one reviewer who's purely quantitative and is like take out all this qualitative stuff and then you might get one reviewer who's purely qualitative and say take out the quant and so it's hard to find that balance to both get the work done do it right and then get it through review so let's start with that first question of what the mixed methods actually mean to you and what that looks like okay for me i don't think about it categorically first. I think about methods as existing on a continuum. Also, and very importantly, we don't use methods for, I don't know, ritual reasons. We use methods because we need them to tell us something specifically, and that that's the best way to find it out. So I would, you know, I would never say that every anthropological study needs to have mixed methods in it. Um, I'm hard-pressed to think of an anthropological study that would not benefit from a mixed methods approach, but that's saying, some, that's saying something differently. So anyway, I think of methods uh, that we use in anthropology as existing on this continuum, and it's really a continuum from stimulus, a, a, a stimulus for a respondent, which is fundamentally unstructured to a stimulus for a respondent, which is highly structured. And that in that continuum, you're getting different kinds of data. Now you can, a lot of times you can do the same thing with the data you're getting, right? I mean, you can, you can analyze data quantitatively and qualitatively in various ways, uh, considering how you get that stuff coming in. Um, but, but fundamentally, it is a, a question of how structured the um, data collection stimulus is mm -hmm. from something entirely unstructured through um, semi-structured techniques to highly structured techniques. Okay, then I guess another question kind of adding on to that is we get a lot of folks who are early in their careers, both graduate students and in early career faculty as well who listen to the show, folks who are wanting to take a mixed methods approach, but maybe haven't been fully trained because not every graduate program has, you know, quality mixed methods approach training. How would you recommend they go about that? Uh, you know, kind of where should they start in, in developing a project with a mixed methods approach? Well, again, I'm going to go back to the first thing is the problem itself, the question itself. Okay. Um, how is it that a certain set of methods are going to get you where you want to go? in answering that question. So that's absolutely, that's the absolutely number one issue. Um, now, number two, you know, there are tremendous, there, there are tremendous resources out there nowadays in terms of uh, how to structure data collection, how to um, analyze data once it's been collected. And, and so there's lots of stuff there's lots of stuff that you can employ, lots of resources that you can employ to learn that. Now, I know, I do understand, I do understand that, you know, it can be a slog <laughs> trying, to, trying to learn the nuances of interviewing techniques, for example, on your own 
out of a book as opposed to being able to learn it in a seminar setting and practice on each other and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It can be a slog. But there are, like I say, there are, there, there are so many resources out there that there were not nearly 50 years ago when I was in graduate school. That would be my first piece of advice. The other thing, of course, is reading literature, obviously, but, <laughs> but finding in that literature a kind of model for data collection mm-hmm. that you think, okay, bingo, that's, that's going to work, right? I get it. There's, yeah. here's, here's somebody who's maybe doing something very different than I'm intending or wanting to do, but I can see taking this model for data collection and applying it to my own work. And I think that's just tremendously important, mm-hmm. just tremendously important. I guess the last thing I, 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 I need to throw this in somewhere mm-hmm. is that we oftentimes think of mixed methods as, you know, ethnography first, quantitative data collection second. Mm. And I don't think that's a useful way to think about it. I think a useful way to think about it is a kind of a, a of a of a flexible back and forth mm. um, in terms of collecting data. Uh, because, you know, you may run across something that you, like, just don't understand when you're doing a survey, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, piece of survey work. Well, you better understand it, you know. Go out and collect some open-ended interviews and see if you can figure it out right then, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't wait until two years later and say, oh, geez, we should have collected some data on this, <laughs> you know. Um, and so that idea, and, you know, like... Um, like the kind of data that you collect for doing um, uh, the the kind of highfalutin stuff called discourse or narrative analysis, that kind of stuff. Um, I find it very useful to, to collect that as follow-up to uh, survey research uh, because it's an interesting way. And also when I sample, there are some questions about sampling in there. When I sample for uh, qualitative very when I sample for highly unstructured data collection, um, I'm not just you know talking to anybody. I'm targeting people. You know, I got a I got a paper right now that I'm working on, where we're we we're um, part of the paper is analyzing these these 16 open-ended interviews that were collected as follow-up to survey work, and we targeted. Yeah, I'm working in these four neighborhoods in, in Brazil, differing in socioeconomic status. And what we did was we targeted people in each neighborhood who were within a half a standard deviation of the neighborhood mean for cultural consonants. You know, So it was a theoretically driven sampling so that we could find people who represented a certain, quote unquote, type of person in each neighborhood. Um, and uh, we do, even in, in upfront work, when we're doing cultural domain analysis, which is really the transitional set of methods between purely unstructured methods and purely structured methods, when we're doing cultural domain analysis, we're targeting people that we want to talk to. Now, you can't always do that because sometimes you're literally starting out saying, I don't know who I want to talk to. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So you just talk to whoever you can talk to. But as 
as time builds, you can you can weave these uh, data sets together in terms of, uh, of of targeting where you're going to learn the most. And of course, you know what's the utility of of unstructured methods, as I'm calling them anyway. Well, the utility is what I I call the anthropological prime directive, which was what Malinowski said in uh, the last page of his introduction to Argonauts of the Western Pacific. He said, fundamentally, we want to see the world as others see it. And that is an anthropological writ large, you know, not a cultural anthropological, not a linguistic anthropological, but an anthropological prime directive. And and so building that emic perspective and capturing that emic perspective in various ways I think is just what we do. And if you don't so, do that, then you're doing something else. I want to put a pin in a, a couple things you said. One, you pointed out that there weren't many resources for finding all this stuff out uh, when you started. And certainly there are a lot out there. Two of them are, are yours since uh, in, the, in the latter period there, right before you retired, and then with your retirement, you've got two books out. One's called The Five Things You Need to Know About Statistics, and the other's Culture and the Individual Theory and Method of Cultural Consonance. And so what I would love it if you could do is for listeners who are getting crisscrossed in all the C words here, cultural <laughs> domains, cultural consensus, cultural consonants, can you um, a, a quick and dirty of, of what these are and how they all fit together? Well... Okay, all starts with uh, Ward Goodenough's 1956 definition of culture, which is that which one needs to know to function adequately in a given social setting. There's the definition of culture as that which one needs to know to function adequately. And so, again, the emphasis is on how people see the world around them, how they understand the world around them, right? Okay, now, if there's somebody of knowledge that you have to know to function adequately, that means everybody has to know it, quote unquote. Everybody has to know it, right? And so immediately it implies the sharing of culture, which is something that E.B. Tyler pointed out in Primitive Society in 1879. You know, like about five pages after his famous definition of culture as that complex whole, which includes ba-da-da-da. About five pages of that, he said, the most remarkable thing about human beings is how they settle down to a general consensus. And so the term consensus for talking about culture has been around for 150 years, right? Well, of course, fast forward to the 1980s and um, some very smart people, Bill Batchelder, Kim Romney, and Sue Weller, did some very good thinking about how we can actually identify a consensus, not merely assume a consensus, but identify that, in fact, people do agree to varying to a varying extent, um, people do agree about what you need to know to to operate effectively in a given society and came up with the cultural consensus model, 
right? And so consensus is is just really a term for that idea that culture is shared, that culture right. is agreed upon, okay? Now, the next C word, competence, <laughs> comes from how much does the individual, him or herself, agree with that overall consensus, right? And so with culture and consensus and competence, we're just talking about that sharing of a, of a pool of information. Um, and it's going from the aggregate consensus to the individual competence. But as I've said, as I've written many times, you know, to, uh, to plagiarize myself, <laughs> people don't just think about stuff. They do stuff as well. And, and culture, that knowledge that we have, gets translated into practice, into social practice. Cultural consonance is a term to describe that individual social practice relative to the agreed upon understanding within a particular domain. I just feel listening to all of this and, and you know coming from your mouth, I just see so many applications today in, in the way that we seem to all constantly disagree on what's the cultural consensus to behave right now, you know, in a pandemic. And then the competence to actually follow one of these views or the other. So this is something that, you know, for our listeners at home who might not be anthropologists and use this in their work, but this is something that's very relevant to everybody. And we're watching it play out in very real time right now with real effects. Just just to throw it in, w with consonants, you can measure health outcomes. So like the, the consonants of mask wearing and not mask wearing and the mm -hmm. stress that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. That would be hard to wrap my, uh, an operational brain around. But I also just would not want to do that study. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to deal with any of that. But also to like zoom out now a little bit because you have been doing this work, as you said, for, for 50 years and you've seen the change and the growth within our field. Uh, I'm a little bit curious, and you can take this two different ways, of what you see the future of mixed methods being, or you can answer what you want the future of mixed methods and what direction you want to see it go. Hmm. I, I, I hesitate to prognosticate because I'm, you know, I'm never right about such things when I do it. <laughs> um, so I hesitate to do that. You know, I think that if my work has any utility, one thing, and I learned this from Bert too. I learned from this from Bert early on. And I got lucky too. I got I, I, I have to say that I got immensely lucky in my career in being able to fall into some field situations. But and 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 don't worry, I'm circling back around to your to your question, Kara. It sounds no like I'm not. It sounds like I'm not, but I'm circling <laughs> back around. One of the fundamental things that's so important is replication, and we don't do. And it, now, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Bob Benfer here and uh, what he called creative replication. You know, not I mean, because we we go to the field, and you know, it takes me two and three years just to collect data. And so you can't go out and just, you know, replicate straight away the way somebody can replicate a lab experiment. In anthropology, we 
don't build enough and incorporate enough what other people do as a way of testing it. And the, the, the whole cultural consonance model is really quite remarkable in the number of replications in diverse places that have occurred. Now, what I'm circling back to, Kara, is that one direction that I would like to see anthropology take is to concentrate on these creative replications using mixed methods, right? Using using model research designs, mixed methods research designs. This is not a commercial like, you know, well, run right out there and replicate cultural consonants, which of course I want you to do, but I'm not, not that, that's not a commercial. What I'm saying is that we, here's what I'm saying. We don't really yet understand the true utility of the hypothetical payoffs to mixed methods research. We have faith that this is an important way to go, but I'm not convinced that we can yet point to a or several model mixed methods research designs and say, here's the payoff. Here's the payoff. You know, that's what I want to see is I want to, you know, it's like, it's like the old saying goes, show me the money. Right. Um, you know, I want to see the payoff. You're going to go do all this stuff. So what, you know, show me. And, and I think part of that is going to require, and I, you know, a lot of anthropologists are not going to like to hear this, but part of that is going to require that we got to get a lot more hard nosed about what we call traditional qualitative methods. Right. Um, because so much of it continues to be, and it's not even bad, but so much of it just continues to be sort of apt illustration, you know. Well, we think this is going on. And, oh, my, here, by the way, here's an informant quote that seems consistent with what we think is going on, mm. right? You know, and, and, you know, so what? You cherry picked that out of uh, 75,000 words of transcript, right? You know, mm-hmm. tell me. Um you know, we got to get a lot more hard-nosed in uh, our analysis, and it's not that difficult. Especially, it's not, especially nowadays, it's not that that difficult to make a lot more out of the data we collect than we traditionally do. I'm sorry, that was a sort of a sort of a salad response to your question, but I think there are some answers in there. It, it does get to some of the stuff that we we talk about here, not not just to what goes into how the science is made, but we're always interested in in how it's applied and the outcomes and how it fits into policy and the relevance of anthropology. And I think we have an we have a an unfortunate but but certainly a natural experiment going on here that has highlighted in in many ways some of the insights anthropology has had, and and one of those is. We, we can take an empirical approach to culture and, and look at the impacts on health and, and influence policy, but who is doing that or who is listening or how is that being actually done? And I know that you, this isn't on, on what we sent you, but I know you've, you've been federally funded by the NIH and the NSF. And so I, I am curious as to what 
if any impacts your work has had in, in the policy realm in terms of showing how culture does literally and, and very directly impact health? Well, that's a good question. You know, it turns out that concept of cultural consonance resonates fairly widely. You can you can do um, uh, citation analyses of concepts just the way you can do citation analyses of uh, people, and it turns out <laughs> little old cultural consonance has a uh, has an H index of twenty two, which is pretty good in the web mm -hmm. of science, right? And since 96, when the term was first introduced, the citations have steadily inclined, you know, steadily gone up. And there's a, you know, a significant proportion of citation in anthropology, but it's about a third of the citations of the construct are in anthropology. And the other two thirds are in public health, uh, psychology, psychiatry, human biology, um, other other areas, um, and and so that's a little bit of evidence that there's some impact there, uh, some wider impact. I have seen some people talk or write about the policy importance of implementing interventions in a way that there's fidelity to the way in which people are consonant with norms. <clears throat> there's something that came out in social science and medicine not, not too long ago, and they were looking at they were looking at something in the West Bank of Palestine. And I can't remember what it was, unfortunately, but uh, but the but making making the case that interventions must take into account in essence the way you know if you want to intervene and get people thinking about something in a different way are you doing it in such a way that they can actually incorporate that into their own lives right you know or is it a purely abstract intervention you know like back in the day it showed that health education in the workplace is great for teaching people about hypertension and diabetes and obesity they learn a lot. They don't do anything differently, <laughs> but they learn a lot, yeah. you know. And so the idea of 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 phrasing and and presenting and implementing interventions in a way that it's actually possible for people to act on them, I think is something that um, you know is is resonant out there. Okay. So, so speaking of that, right, like one of the things that, that we brought you on here for is because one of our producers is really excited about, she's deep in, in methods and, and measurement. And, and we did a, a mini year on, on hacks for, for success in academia. So this year we're, we're tiptoeing up to one on methods and measurement. And so I want to ask you just like a, a sort of nitty gritty methods question, speaking of that sort of like what people do that's outside of the the sort of main mainstream which is residual analysis so if you could tell us tell us what what you mean when you talk about residual analysis and how and why is that important well you know first off kudos to jim boster because he was the one who invented the term in 86 uh, his paper on residual agreement was published in the next issue of the american anthropologist after 
the uh, Romney, Weller, and Batchelder paper on consensus was published. And, you know, it's, again, you know, a lot of this stuff is not rocket science, right? Um, and, you know, and residual agreement analysis just boils down to the fact that people can agree on the overarching shape of a cultural domain, and then they can disagree on the nitty-gritty of how it goes together. And the perfect example of that, for me, from my own work, and I've never published this, but uh, it's nevertheless a perfect example, is um, uh, family life in Brazil. And Brazilians are, you know, they really have a sense of what the prototypical Brazilian family should be. And it's a balance between two sets of characteristics. One set of characteristic characteristics is affect, emotion, the emotional bonds within the family, love. They use the term união, union. It doesn't carry the connotation in English that it carries in Portuguese. Um, compreensão comprehension, you know, which carries a very, uh, a very distinct connotation of Portuguese. But it's all this intense emotional bond within the family. And then on the other side, and sometimes you might think paradoxically for Brazilians, there's a strong emphasis on structure, rules, family organization, patterns of authority, patterns of respect uh, within the family. And, and there's a balance there. Now, when you do the straight-ahead consensus model, boom, enormous, enormous agreement on the overall ranking of, the, uh, of these characteristics. And what you get in the, in the uh, answer key to the consensus analysis is you get this sort of interspersing of affect organization, structure, affect, you know, down the rank of things that are important. Well, when you do a residual agreement analysis, it turns out that there's two groups, people who emphasize love and affect within the family, people who emphasize structure and organization within the family. Now, everybody agrees these, this stuff is all important, but there's a subgroup who privilege love and affect, privilege structure and organization. Turns out that maps onto social class. Lower income individuals privilege structure and organization. Mm. Higher income individuals privilege love and affect. And we, we did a um, focus group not long after we had done these initial analyses of the of the of the family as a cultural domain, and uh, man, they got into a fight. You know, Brazilians love to talk, and they got into this fight about, no, 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 you, I have to love my little child, and no, 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 your little child has to understand that there are rules and there's you know there's a structure to life, and back and forth, back and forth. We walked out, and my colleague Mauro Baliero, who with whom I've worked for many many years. As we walked out, he said, you know, if I didn't know any better, I would have said that they read your report on the cultural <laughs> domain analysis <laughs> and that they were just phrasing their argument solely in terms of what you already found out. But that's, that's the, 
Yeah, they nailed it. And, and that's the idea of residual agreement an, an analysis. And what it is, I've come to, residual agreement analysis is a kind of a overly complicated term. What I've just, wonky, yeah. yeah, what I've come to think of it as is differential configuration of the domain. You know, there's an overall agreed upon configuration. And then people can take that and reconfigure elements of it. And where there's agreement on the reconfiguration of elements, that's residual agreement. It's not know? quite subculture, but it's sort of like plucking their identity from this general mainstream agreed upon set of things. You got it. And it could, at, at some point, it could even tip over into something that you might want to call subculture. Sure. I don't know what that is, but it might. Well, it someone might. else do. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a really wonderful example that I think highlights kind of everything that you've been talking about with us today. Uh, and when Chris and I started, we always kind of do this intro before we bring you on. He had said, you're an emeritus professor. You are kind of officially retired, but you're still hard at work. And so we're kind of wondering what you're up to right now and what plans you've got going on for the future. Well, right now, I got several things going on. I've been writing vigorously because, you know, I got a bunch of data lying around that remains unanalyzed or semi-analyzed. And so I got a, a couple of papers under review right now. I'm working on on a paper right now that is kind of interesting because it speaks to everything we've been talking about right mm -hmm. now, uh, in, in especially in the mixed methods sense. And what I'm proposing is a spatial model of culture, not a cultural model of space, mm -hmm. a spatial model of culture. And, you know, we've talked about that for decades in anthropology, right? Um, we're always within a cultural environment. I did a search on Web of Science, and there were, I don't know, like in the last five years, there were something like 300 papers that used, the, that had the term cultural environment in the keywords, and like 50 of them used it in the title. And so there's this, this very, there's this very basic way of thinking about people as being inside their culture. Well, interestingly enough, cognitive neuroscience to suggest that we use the same neural apparatus for thinking about similarities and differences in semantics and similarities and differences in social interaction. We use the same neural apparatus for that as we use to drive up to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread, figure out. we, In other words, we appear to use our spatial navigation system for a lot more than navigating physical mm -hmm. space. We also use it for navigating social and semantic space. And the idea occurred to me that actually using the cognitive culture theory, you can describe cultural space in three dimensions. There's cultural competence, how well you know a particular model. 
there's residual agreement where you fall out on that differential configuration of items and cultural consonants, the degree to which you actually put it into practice. And that it may be useful to model culture as individuals position in three dimensions defined by those three axes of culture. Well, long story short is that empirically it works out pretty well. You know, uh, there's a little bit more to it. But the second half, the second half of that story is the analysis of these open-ended interviews. And it's those 16 interviews that I mentioned having selected uh, in terms of people's proximity to the cultural consonants means in the, in the neighborhoods. Long story short is that I ended up analyzing those interviews for the use of metaphors of spatial navigation mm-hmm. in talking about your life, right? You know, so you talk about, uh, <laughs> I, remember, I remember one guy, one of the great quotes from, uh, from one of the interviews was, um, well, you know, everybody's chasing their own carrot. <laughs> you know, this idea of chasing this thing in life mm-hmm. or, you know, at a certain place uh, in life. And, you know, there's a, just a whole bunch of uh, spatial navigation metaphors. Well, what I did was I analyzed those 16 interviews for these, for these spatial themes mm-hmm. and boiled them down to about seven basic themes. So I had this 16 by 7 matrix, did a direct correspondence analysis of the 16 by 7 matrix so that I could take the individuals and plot them in a space defined by both their distance from each other and their proximity to these different themes. Well, then I had, these guys came out of the big survey that we in, we had done. So I had data on consonants and data on a variable that I call sense of personal agency. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that the more that you use these spatial metaphors and configure them in a particular way, the higher your cultural consonants, the higher your sense of personal agency. Interesting. Uh-huh. So... We're looking at, now this is circling back around to where we started in the first place. What does this tell us? Given this, I mean, it's 16 interviews, right? Okay. But I would point out that their, that individuals' positions in this cultural space correlate to the tune of like 0.6 with consonants and, and uh, agencies. So it's not, you know, we're not making stuff up here. What it gives us is, okay, an insight into a patterned subjectivity and that this patterned subjectivity itself maps on to these larger measures and vice versa. And so what I think is that there's just this continuous feedback loop, which boils down to if you can articulate, if you can talk about your life in these terms of movement and, 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 and navigating the inevitable obstacles in life, then you are also higher consonant, higher agency. Why is it you can articulate that narrative? 
probably because you've got a higher sense of agency and your consonants. You know, it's just this feedback loop between your position in this cultural space and subjectivity. It reminds me of how much my mind was blown when you told me about some of the early research you did here in Tuscaloosa of the West Side, which is primarily African-American, and how there are certain pockets around town and they map histories of, uh, I don't know if it was the plantation or the antebellum era, and, and those pockets are still there, and there's an internalized subjectivity that that seems to persist in those areas from that period in the the way our demographics still fall out to this day. I don't know if that's quite what you're saying, but that's where my mind is going. Well, that works. That Perfect. works. Yeah, that works. So anyway, this is this is what keeps me off the streets. Uh, that, and, yeah. that and the fear of COVID. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that our emerita designation is not, is not going to waste, that you're still keeping busy and, and making the department look good. I know you're also quite a, you've had quite a, a while to, to work on your, your guitar picking skills. I wonder what you're doing for, if you're still doing that for fun or what y'all are doing for fun in, in this COVID and in, in retirement and all that. Well, um, I'm, I'm, it, it, the funny thing is, is that I still don't have as much time to practice guitar as I'd like to. <laughs> you know, I, I should be putting in a couple hours a day and I don't make that. But I have learned the prelude to the uh, first cello suite by Bach. Um, that's, that's uh, in the original cello suite, it's in G major, but it's transcribed to guitar in, in C major. And I've learned that. And right now I'm working on the Gavotte one and two from the sixth cello suite. And I'm also working on a bourree from Bach's second violin partita. And so I'm doing that. Um, How's your hearing today? You guys were at an event last night? <laughs> yeah, we went to uh, see Santana Saturday or uh, Friday night. That was fabulous. Just fabulous. I mean, what a tight band. Um, I mean, those guys are so, so good. And that was just, uh, that was really an excellent, they went two and a half hours flat out. One set, no opening act, two and a half hours Ooh. flat out. And um, it was just great. It was fabulous. And then, Chris, you, you and I share an interest in um, science fiction, and I've been reading mm. some. Been some reading Kara some. does, too. Love oh, really, Kara? Yeah. yeah. Good. I just been, finished an amazing series called The Murderbot Diaries, which I highly recommend to everybody. I've, I've read about that. I've read about that. Have you guys read any of, of either Anne Leckie or... Becky Chambers. Becky Chambers, yes. Uh, a long way series. to small, yeah, the, the, the yes. small angry yes. planet. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I enjoyed a, that. It's very, it's it's light, quick read, honestly, and I enjoyed it a good deal. But have you read the whole series? I have because they're almost they're related, but you could also but, totally read them separately and be fine. Except that it's a whole lot better to read all four of them yeah. in order. <laughs> yeah. My I, husband I, was asking me about them, and I'm like. You can read them separately and still get something, but you don't get the full picture without right. agree. Yeah. Well, I really, really like, and Becky Chambers is really interesting. 
really interesting too. Oh, I mean Anne Leckie. Yeah, Becky Chambers is the Wayfarer series. Anyway, Bill, I'm sure we could probably do a whole other episode on our favorite sci-fi books and shows. <laughs> um, and probably we could do a mini-series of anthropologists and favorite books, sci-fi books and shows. Yeah. Uh, but this has been a really insightful uh, interview, and I very much enjoyed it and learned a whole bunch. So thank you again for, for taking some time to chat. Sorry to take today. over the questions there, Kara. I just... Uh... You didn't take have over a, the questions. You're good. I have I have a personal interest in picking Bill's brain since he's not in the hallways for me to continue to do it anymore. So, <laughs> well, who who knows when things settle down? If things settle down, yeah, right. I may show my face around the office more. Dare. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Thank you so much.